Hello, and welcome to the Tech Dirt Podcast. I'm Mike Masnick. Uh, you may have noticed that we've never had any advertising or sponsorship on the Tech Dirt Podcast. Uh, this is in part because it just hasn't been worth the effort, uh, and in part because we really don't want to clutter the podcast with advertisements that you wouldn't be interested in hearing. Uh, however, today we are finally doing our very first sponsorship, and it is because we think that listeners of this podcast will actually really, really like this. Uh, the Pessimists Archive, if you haven't heard of it, is an amazing Twitter feed that combs through old news articles to highlight stories that predicted doom and gloom about some new innovation that, of course, proved to be laughably wrong over time. Uh, they have now started a really brilliant podcast called Pessimists Allowed, uh, which can be found at anchor.fm slash pessimists allowed. And we'll link to that in the show notes as well. But if you just do a search on it, you can find it. Uh, and the podcast creates fantastic audio reads of those old articles in a wonderful sort of old timey voice. Uh, the episodes are all relatively short. And I have to admit that just listening to them puts a smile on my face as you hear this, this wonderful voice explaining, say, the horrors of Thomas Edison's phonograph and how no one will ever wish to speak to anyone again for fear of being recorded. Uh, to give you a taste of the Pessimists Allowed podcast, we're going to run about the first minute and a half of their very first episode, which is all about how Thomas Edison has invented far too many things before uh, we go into our regularly scheduled podcast. So please enjoy uh, a clip of the Pessimists Allowed. The Aerophone, the New York Times, March 25th, 1878. Something ought to be done to Mr. Edison, and there is a growing conviction that it had better be done with a hemp rope. Mr. Edison has invented too many things, and almost without exception, they are things of the most deleterious character. He has been addicted to electricity for many years, and it is not very long ago that he became notorious for having discovered a new force though he has since kept it carefully concealed, either upon his person or elsewhere. Recently, he invented the phonograph, a machine that catches the lightest whisper of conversation and stores it up so that at any future time it can be brought out, to the confusion of the original speaker. This machine will eventually destroy all confidence between man and man, and render more dangerous than ever woman's want of confidence in woman. No man can feel sure that wherever he may be, there is not a concealed phonograph remorselessly gathering up his remarks and ready to reproduce them at some future date. Who will be willing even in the bosom of his family, to express but most innocuous and colorless views. And what woman, when calling on a female friend and waiting for the latter to make her appearance in the drawing-room, will dare to express her opinion of the wretched taste displayed in the furniture, or the hideous appearance of the family photographs? In the days of persecution and espionage, it was said, though with poetical exaggeration, that the walls had ears. Thanks to Mr. Edison's perverted ingenuity, this has not only become a literal truth, but every shelf, closet, or floor may now have its concealed phonographic ears. 
All right. So if you enjoyed that little clip, and I'm sure most of you did, please go and check out the Pessimists Aloud podcast and subscribe to it. I'm sure that anyone who listens to this podcast will enjoy hearing those old articles uh, and the views on technology, uh, and it might uh, add a little perspective to how we view some of the news and coverage of, of technology today. Uh, and with that, we'll get on to today's podcast. Please enjoy. The world is increasingly technological, so we have better get methodical. Bringing precision to critical digital journalism with the singular vision of a modern monocle. Stopping the copyright police from pulling the wall on us. Facing and taking on all the blatant pay to troll. Document the ways that they aim to take control. Scrutinize and brutalize and make them fold. If we don't stand up to them, someone will get hurt. To grab a shovel and dig up the tech. If we don't stand up to them, someone will get hurt. To grab a shovel and dig up the tech. There are so many proposals being passed around these days to change laws to deal with what people consider to be bad content online. Uh, many of these focus on intermediary liability, such as changing Section 230 in an effort to make websites liable for content that, that lands on their sites. Uh, many of the ideas proposed, uh, some of which we've talked about here quite a bit, uh, seem wholly disconnected from reality. Uh, but some of them do deserve a, a deeper dive to kind of think through the implications of, of what is happening. Uh, one that has certainly gained a lot of attention lately is on the question of amplification. And the general thinking here is that while it may make sense to protect websites from liability for passive hosting of material, once they get into the business of amplifying that content, such as through algorithmic recommendations, then it becomes more reasonable to place potential liability on those platforms. Now, at first pass, uh, I, I think it's somewhat understandable how all this thinking comes about. You know, the, the argument is that if the content would not have gone viral or spread as widely without the boost from the website and, and the amplification, then it feels somewhat more reasonable at an instinctual level to pin the responsibility of that boost on the website. Uh, our guest today, who has been on the podcast a bunch of times in the past, is Daphne Keller, who directs the program on platform regulation at Stanford Cyber Policy Center. And she recently released a paper for the Knight First Amendment Institute uh, at Columbia, uh, specifically exploring the questions regarding liability associated with amplification. Uh, the paper itself is called Amplification and Its Discontents, uh, and we'll have a link to it in the show notes, and I highly recommend checking it out. I think if you've heard Daphne on the podcast uh, in the past, you know that you should read everything that she puts out. Uh, the paper explores the many, many challenges uh, that come up in, in trying to draft a, a policy approach that deals with liability for amplification and highlights all of the very, very tricky nuances and potential negative consequences of going down that particular path. So, uh, Daphne, welcome back to the podcast. Thanks, Mike. It's good to be here. Cool. So <laughs> I gave a sort of quick summary above, but do you want to sort of give your own brief synopsis of, of the paper and, and sort of with it why you wrote it? Sure. Um so, you know, part of the reason I wrote it is, is because, like you, I've heard a lot of people say, oh, well, you know, we can't regulate speech, but it's fine to regulate reach. Or, mm -hmm. you know, we, we can't hold platforms responsible for what users say, but we can hold the platforms responsible for what they themselves choose to amplify. Um, and all of the, those things sound like 
tantalizingly useful. <laughs> you know, they, yes. they sound like the first step in figuring out a policy that makes sense. Um, but I think actually they're the first step toward something that is even more complicated and hard to resolve than the platform regulation discussions that we already have about, you know, potential changes to, to CDA 230 or, um, you know, laws regarding platform responsibility for user speech. So this is an article to unpack why that is. Um, and it, it doesn't start from a position of, you know, criticism, mm -hmm. really, like, I, I'm actually, I'm pretty sympathetic to the idea that um, there's some content that's not very harmful if it's just sitting in a book or an email or a website or, you know, on a Facebook post, but that becomes much more harmful if it's ubiquitous and widespread. And so some more, you know, heavy handed legal response is warranted in in that situation that that's not illogical it's just that defining what this more heavy-handed <laughs> legal response could be actually turns out to be a giant mess yeah I, I mean i think that's sort of my reaction too where it's like again sort of that that instinctual reaction upon thinking about it is like yeah okay it is different to say like oh okay this this website is just hosting content you know it's just there it's just sort of the the passive platform um and you can understand why it, it's harder to, to regulate that. And then you say, but if they're adding some sort of al algorithm to it and they're amplifying it so that it spreads and if it goes viral and, you know, especially if you get to the argument that, you know, without that amplification, this particular content um, wouldn't have gone viral and wouldn't have created, you know, fill in the blank mess, <laughs> you know, that, that comes from, from the spread of certain content, you know, whether it's disinformation or, you know, encouragement to storm the capital or whatever it might be um it 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 feels like a like a more targeted approach and one that that also feels more um more like putting the the liability on the party that that feels more like it is responsible for that content so I, so i understand all of that but i think you know what's important and what you've done here and and, and is to begin to think through what does that actually mean and how does that look and, and suddenly you begin to realize that that every approach has issues <laughs> yeah and and they're very much uh, it's a rehash of the same issues that you see in any Sure. discussion of, of platform liability for user content. And there's just always the same starting problem, which is that if you tell platforms that they are responsible for figuring out what's illegal and then deleting it or de-amplifying it or you know, whatever measure you want them to take, that first step where they figure out what's illegal is something they're really bad at and yeah. they you know consistently over enforce whether the over enforcement means deleting or the over enforcement means taking out of recommendations or whatever and that over enforcement you know not it's not just that it hurts legal speech it also there's more and more reason to believe probably has disparate impact where some people's speech gets unfairly silenced more than other people's speech um, you know, there are all of these problems with that margin of error that platforms introduce, and those problems crop up whether you are taking someone's post down altogether, which is, you know, what happens under laws like the DMCA or the e-commerce directive in the EU, or whether what the platform is doing 
is just depriving it of most of its audience by taking it out <laughs> of a ranked news feed or out of recommendations or out of these places that are where most users actually encounter speech and information. Yeah, I mean, part of the issue too is that, you know, when you're talking about amplification, most of the time, and there are exceptions to this, but I think most of the time it is sort of an algorithmic recommendation. And and I'm not sure how you teach an algorithm to recognize something that is illegal if we're talking about illegal speech, right? I mean, the, the, the process of figuring out if, if particular speech is illegal, it, it tends to be a long and involved judicial process, which, you know, can go either way. And I don't know how you you know, un until we get to the point where the, the AI is running the court system, <laughs> uh, I'm, I'm not sure how you convince a, an algorithm to be able to understand, um, you know, what speech crosses that line. Yes. And, <laughs> you know, as, as you certainly know, we are several years into very, very deep debates about using technology to identify what speech is illegal. Yeah. This comes up in the context of the filtering mandate in the Article 17 of the EU Copyright Directive. And it also came up in debates about the terrorist content regulation in the EU. And, mm -hmm. you know, these discussions prompted huge numbers of civil society organizations to send letters, you know, demanding that lawmakers not mandate filters because filters are bad at identifying what content is illegal. It prompted letters from several UN human rights rapporteurs saying, hey, wait, there's no such thing as a machine that can detect which speech is illegal terrorist speech and distinguish that from news reporting, for example, or parodies or academic commentary or counter speech. So we, we have actually a lot of recent experience in the great shortcomings of attempts to identify illegal speech using algorithms, even when companies set out to try to do that. Right. And so, you know, on the, the back end of that, with that learning behind us to turn around and be like, well, but they can figure out what's illegal <laughs> when they're shaping their newsfeed ranking algorithms um, just seems like a, a real logical glitch. Yeah, I mean, you know, and, and and the most obvious one to me is like, how do you how do you distinguish between like, you know, what is illegal versus what is like journalism reporting on the illegality? Um, mm -hmm. And, you know, and, and human beings sometimes have trouble with that, you know, let alone, a, a, you know, a, an AI system. Um, yeah. And, you know, if if we did have algorithms that could figure out what's illegal, then let's just have platforms take it down. You know, right. like, let's, let's not screw around with taking it out of the recommendations. Right, right. Um, yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it just, yeah, it, it becomes very challenging. I mean, so, you know, in the, um, in the paper itself, you sort of divided it up into different models for regulating amplification. And, and the first one is that sort of thing where if you're amplifying illegal speech, um, you know, and, and it, as you noted, that also does run into generally First Amendment potential issues in the U.S. context, obviously. Um, then a, a second area that you do talk about is liability for amplifying, uh, you know, what, what goes by different names, but my favorite because it rhymes is the lawful but awful um, category. And, you know, that's the the approach now that like the uk is really pushing for with its 
it's no longer the online harms bill. What is it? It's the online safety mm -hmm. <laughs> bill, I think, is the the rebranding um, where it's basically like, you know, yeah, this content is perfectly lawful, but it's it's problematic and you should know that it's problematic and therefore you should do something with it. Um, so you want to talk a little bit about that where I, to me, it feels sort of obvious why this is even more fraught than 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 the illegal speech. But do you want to talk a little bit to to handle you know the issues that come up when you're trying to deal with lawful but awful kind of speech? Sure, and maybe I'll just make one more point about the the illegal speech sure. but before moving on to this one, <clears throat> which is um, every legal system has some version of um, recognizing that it's a problem for user speech if the law incentivizes platforms to over enforce and silence lawful speech. So that piece of it, um, you know, the logic of that concern crops up in the US legal system, you know, mm -hmm. in, in cases about bookstores or et cetera, you know, it crops up in precedent from the um, European Court of Human Rights, that, that's kind of the same in any legal system, even if the, the details of how courts handle it um, varies, uh, depending what, which country you're in. But a piece that is maybe unique to the US, and I think worth noting for US First Amendment lawyers, is that, you know, maybe in other countries, you could say, well, we're going to tolerate some sloppy over-enforcement, as long as the consequence is just that things get taken out of recommendations, but you know they're still around and hosted and they haven't been disappeared entirely. So you know we're going to kind of weigh the factors and say it, it's okay to have over enforcement uh, against amplification. Uh, but in the U.S., you can't make that move as easily as you probably can other places because mm -hmm. there are all these these Supreme Court cases where the court says. It doesn't matter if Congress is silencing lawful speech or just inconveniencing that speech or burdening it or making it harder to distribute. Those two things are the same from a constitutional perspective, and they both get strict scrutiny if Congress is setting out to target particular speech to be de-amplified on the one hand or you know suppressed entirely on the other. So th there's this kind of hard line that comes out of the US-specific law Mm -hmm. um, that that makes talking about amplification per particularly hard here. And that carries over from the illegal speech model into the harmful speech model, because the harmful speech model is basically just saying, OK, well, in addition to regulating stuff that's already illegal, let's also regulate amplification of some stuff that didn't used to be illegal, um, <laughs> right. but, you know, but now we're going to say keep it out of amplification. Um, and And there again, I'm I'm sympathetic to this. You know, I'm sympathetic to saying there's some, um, you know, hate speech or medical disinformation or something mm -hmm. that was that's barely legal today, but if it gets amplified widely and causes much more harm, then that crosses the line to right. where it should become illegal. Um, and that's that's not foreign to our legal system or to any legal system. You know, there are lots of things that you could say um, legally in your home or in a letter, but if you said them to an angry mob and actually incited violence that was imminent, um, they become illegal and they, they become something that you can be arrested for and, you know, prosecuted for consistent with the constitution. You know, context matters. Um, and speaking to large crowds and spreading information widely is part of the context that matters. This is something that Larissa Lidsky has, has written about really well in the internet context. Um, 
So I think it's not crazy to say there's some currently legal speech that the lawmakers might want not to be amplified. Um, but <laughs> <laughs> once you go down that road, you have this whole new margin of previously legal, now regulated speech, and somebody has to define what it is. Right. And the somebody, it seems, in a lot of these models, including the UK online safety proposal, the somebody is Facebook you know, or Twitter right. or YouTube. And then maybe occasionally one of their judgment calls might get surfaced to somebody else for review, but it's not like the user has an avenue to get you know, full and fair adjudication and due process and, and protection of their rights, even though the platform just, you know, silenced them or suppressed their speech because the government told them to do it. Um, so introducing this new margin of newly illegal speech without a major mechanism to adjudicate what it is, um, is a recipe for legal incoherence and sloppy enforcement <laughs> and, and harm to, to users' rights. Yeah, and, and you know the thing that that struck me, especially within the context of the of the UK proposal, uh, you know, on this on this particular topic, is how much it mirrors um, the original design of the Great Firewall of China, uh, <laughs> which you know feels extreme, right, to to even say that. But but you look at you know how that was originally set up and and basically what you got were were missives from the government to various service providers that said you know don't allow anything bad to, to go through and if you do you'll get in trouble for it and and so but like not very well defined and not clear and so the natural uh, reaction to that is to overblock right i mean if anything is even towing the line you don't want to risk it, so you want you end up taking it down, um, mm -hmm. and so that's that's been my fear with with most of the approaches to this, where it's saying you know you you know if you make a mistake because we haven't clearly defined what this is, and you as an intermediary can be held liable, the natural reaction is to overreact and and to suppress you know uh, you know whole whole classes of speech and. In some cases, maybe that solves some of the issues in terms of, you know, speech that is harmful, whether it's like, you know, medical disinformation is, is a perfect example or election disinformation. But, you know, how you distinguish that and how you make that clear and how you do that in a way that doesn't also suppress lots of important and potentially useful information, you know, uh, you know, and we've seen this within certainly in both the election and the and the health information spaces where people who are posting perfectly legitimate information um, is getting pulled down on, under disin disinformation policies. You know, oftentimes just because, you know, you have people who are not experts going through this very, very quickly and you're seeing sort of keywords and you freak out and you pull it down. <laughs> mm -hmm. Or um, you dispatch automation to do it, which, the, you know, right. as we were just talking about, it isn't going to do a great job. I mean, the, the UK online safety bill has this remarkable new corrective to that problem, yeah. which is on the one hand, there's a new and undefined category of harmful content that has to be taken down. And on the other hand, there's a new and also 
undefined category of democratically important content right. that can't be taken down. And so, right. you know, neither of these is something that has any meaning to anybody under, under UK legal precedent because neither of these concepts existed before. <laughs> but both of them are sort of being delegated to platforms to figure out what they mean and get in trouble if they get it wrong. Yeah. And and you could you could imagine content that that conceivably could be argued would fall into both of those categories. Oh, that's a fun Venn diagram. <laughs> yes. <laughs> I mean, depending on who you're talking to, right? And because I mean, that's the thing, right? So much of this is context dependent, and also like you know, observer dependent, right? You know, there are there are certain people who would believe that certain content is democratically important, and a whole other group of people would argue that that is, you know, harmful information. <laughs> um, and so who is the one defining the rules at the end of the day also becomes really important. In, in Absolutely. Absolutely. You know, I could we get Randall Monroe to do one of those great XKCD charts on this, like explaining examples of things that might be both harmful speech and democratically important and uh, teeing up the, <laughs> the hard call there? That would be fantastic. I I, I am all for uh, convincing Randall to do anything, <laughs> but but that would that would be super useful. Um, <laughs> uh, yeah, <laughs> I like a message idea. to you, Randall. That's I don't right. know you, but I think you should do this. Yeah, yeah. Uh, <laughs> I, I don't know him either, but I do know people who do know him. So now I'm tempted to to reach out to them and see if I can pass a, a message along. Um, but um, yeah, I mean, and, and I think this this starts to get at. I mean, obviously, like it, it's funny, you know, because the more we discuss this, right, I'm realizing, like. You know, you hit this, the exact same issues that we talk about when we talk about hosting speech versus amplifying speech, um, and we just sort of automatically, you know, go down that path. Is, so, is there is there something that is notably different or that can be thought about in a different way between the amplification and just the hosting, um, or is it that they really turn out to be the same issues? Well. I mean, again, if you're outside the US and you have a human rights system or a constitutional system that lets you sort of balance harms more mm -hmm. than the Supreme Court does here, um, then, then you could say that because of the greater harm um, from spreading content around very widely, it is acceptable to um, require platforms to do more and accept the the margin of error and the margin of burdening, you know, expression and information inappropriately that, that comes with that. Um, and in a way, we have a precedent for this in Europe in the right to be forgotten. Um, mm -hmm. And I, I kind of hesitate to use that example because I, I fear that people will take the wrong lesson from it. Um, <laughs> but the, the, the thing that makes it super relevant is that the whole idea of the right to be forgotten is sometimes 
there is information that is legal for a newspaper to publish and legal for a newspaper to have on its website or in its archives, but that's illegal for Google to show in search results right. or specifically to show in search results if the, the person that the article is about has said, hey, please, you know, please stop showing this. Um, and, and the court's reasoning for that, you know, the legal basis was deep in data protection laws, which is a pretty unique thing, but it's kind of um, practical reasoning was this article about an embarrassing thing somebody did when they were a teenager uh, is doing more harm now that it shows up in search results and is ubiquitous and easy to find. And therefore, we're going to make one set of rules about when it has to come out of search results that's different from the pre-existing set of rules about when it's illegal to publish it. Um, and as you know, I you know I was at Google. I was the um, associate general counsel for Web Search. I was very deep in in the right to be forgotten ruling at the time. But, mm -hmm. And there are parts of it that that I really disagree with. But this part I was always kind of sympathetic to the idea that sometimes there's information where you want to uh, you don't want to go so far as to ban it, but you do want to create a stumbling block or a, a, you know speed bumps or friction or something so that it's less easy to find. You know, mm -hmm. I would rather have that kind of a um, you know, sh shades of gray rule about suppressing information than just suppress it entirely. Right. Um, and and so, you know, we do have a pretty big, robust conceptual precedent for this, as I see it in the EU. The reason I don't, that I worry about using that example and that people will take the wrong lesson is that the right to be forgotten has gradually shaken that out into a relatively well understood set of rules about what content has to be taken out of search results and, and what doesn't. And but the reason that happened is because Google sunk all this money into litigating takedown cases and, you know, disputing questions about, you know, taking down articles about um, criminal convictions or um, you know, embarrassing political gaffes by by public figures, et cetera. Google litigated that at great expense, and that created gradually a body of public law with courts saying, you know, here's where the line is, here's what should come down, here's what shouldn't because of the public interest. And so that's not too bad. But if mm -hmm. you instead have a vague new set of prohibitions and you give it to every social media platform in the world to enforce and they're not motivated to go litigate that stuff. In fact, they would really rather just take things down under their terms of service and not have a nuisance about all of this. Then you won't ever get that uh, that body of publicly adjudicated law or that opportunity for courts to look at things and for democratic institutions to assess things and for the public to know what's going on. So I, you know, I think the right to be forgotten is a bad example in that respect because it it did get this you know, relatively uh, a lot of public process and attention to refine the rules. And I don't anticipate that happening with things like the UK online safety bills concept of harmful content. Yeah, I th I, I, that's a really good point. I'm, I'm, I'm going to go on a little tangent here just because it's, it's occurred to me and I think it's worth discussing and I don't want to forget it. <laughs> so, <laughs> so, um, which is, you know, so much of this discussion is um you know is focused on on the correct legal regime and it feels like um often it, it, you know a lot of the discussion hinges on the idea that without 
this legal regime in place that companies will act really badly. Um, and I find that that is not that belief or that assumption is not challenged enough. Um, and, and I wonder how that plays into this as well. Right. So everybody can point to examples of companies behaving badly or just not, not handling these things well. Um, but I think that this idea gets stuck in people's heads that because, you know, the large companies mainly, you know, Google and Facebook and, and whoever else may have, you know, not taken certain things seriously at one time, it means that they never take these issues seriously and will not take those issues seriously unless the law changes and forces them to. And I, and, and I think that's, that is a faulty assumption. Um, and so there's a part of me that wonders, like, you know, if we were to step back and recognize that, you know, public pressure uh, and just like recognizing how problematic some of these things are, you have companies already trying to, you know, on the amplification side, right? They're, they're, they've, you know, Facebook has put in place a bunch of processes to try to lower the amplification of certain kinds of speech. And we can argue about how effective that is or how serious they are about it. Um, but they didn't need a law to do that. Um, so is, is that, this is, you know, I'm just rambling here, but like, do, do you think that that is an important point that the, these companies are changing often in response to, you know, stories and examples of problematic behavior that they amplified? Um, and it's not requiring a legal change to do that. Do, do you think that that process continues or that it, it does, you know, that people will always kind of want uh, you know, a regulatory, um, solution in place. Yeah. I, I mean, I think in part people want a regulatory solution in place, um, to have a sense that companies are being held accountable and that there's some kind of oversight or scrutiny of what they're doing. Hmm. Um, sure. so, you know, when, um, at, at one point I, I, tweeted a poll kind of aimed at a Brussels policy audience saying, hey, if the Digital Services Act, which brings all this new regulation of platforms, content management, um, if it were in place, could Facebook have deplatformed President Trump? Yes or no? Or <laughs> like shrug emoji. And <laughs> it was kind of split between yes and no. And then for the vast majority of people went for shrug emoji. Right. But then, you know, the people who weighed in further were like, that's not the point. The point isn't that there is one correct outcome that that regulation would achieve. The point is that the outcome would then be legitimate <laughs> because the regulation was there. Um, right. So so I think that's part of it. Um, but, but I also think um, th there is a kind of, for people who are less sophisticated in how they're thinking about it, there's an illusion that like platforms are doing it wrong now, but if we just put the right laws in place, <laughs> then they would do it right. Um, yes. And, <laughs> and like, that's not going to happen because A, yeah. we cannot all agree on what doing it right would even mean. Right. And then B, as you've written about, you know, very well and, and extensively, 
content moderation at scale is impossible to do well. Like even if you set, could magically set rules we or goals we all agree on, then in implementation, it would get screwed up anyway. So, you know, there isn't some great outcome that we're going to get to through regulation other than the feeling that it is all, or the reality that it is all more legitimate and, you know, accountable and has some kind of government oversight. Yeah. I mean, but the thing is, right, the the answer to how do you do content moderation well is the way that I want it done. Right? That's, that's everybody's <laughs> answer. <laughs> you know, if if I agree with it, then it's right. And if I don't, then it's wrong. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so, you know. Well, yeah. I think we're done then. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. There we go. <laughs> um, so so I, I do want to get to in, in the paper, you do have um, one other section we should have talked about amplifying illegal speech and then amplifying lawful but awful. But but you also, you know, and, and in both of those, you, you note, especially in the U.S. context, the sort of First Amendment challenges to, to both of those approaches. But there is the sort of content neutral approach also. And you discuss a few different ways that 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 could be handled, one being uh, eliminating amplification altogether so that you can't amplify stuff, um, which raises a whole bunch of other questions, or putting in place like other kinds of circuit breakers that might slow the amplification. Do you want to discuss some of those a little bit? Sure. Um, so eliminating amplification is almost just there as a straw man. Like, right. <laughs> wow, would the internet get less useful yes. <laughs> if, if the, the platforms that sort of process and winnow down the barrage of content for us couldn't do that anymore. Right. Um, but, but it's also, I kind of use that section to explore like, what does amplification even mean? Is What is this baseline authentic state of Facebook that we think exists and that we think would be better um, than, than having them algorithmically intervene, which I think is a, an important thing to focus on at least and, a little bit. Being, yeah. And, 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 yeah. and sorry to cut in, but like, I'm, I am constantly amazed at how often people yell at me often on Twitter and, and say, the answer is that everything should just be, you know, the, the, um, you know, the fire hose timeline approach, right? That there should be no, no attempts to algorithmically determine what it is that you should see. And you pick which, who you want to follow, and you should just get the full fire hose of whatever it is they're going in, you know, reverse chronological order or whatever. Um, and yeah, the, the people who want that clearly have a lot more time than <laughs> yes. I do, or follow a lot fewer people. <laughs> yes. And, and also just don't, don't, yeah, don't, yeah, don't care about relevancy or like, you know, uh, or, or are willing to miss all sorts of content. Um, and so, yes, I, I yeah, but uh, Benedict Evans had a good blog post on this a year or two ago where he said, putting your feed in chronological order just means you're taking random samples where the randomizing function is what time you happen to right. look at it. <laughs> That's exactly correct. Yes. Uh, yeah. <laughs> Yeah, so I, I I don't find that solution particularly useful. And yeah. it also, you know, opens up lots of possibilities of abusive or just annoying user behavior. You know, how, yes. how do you deal with spam or with very redundant posts from people you follow or from coordinated and with coordinated and authentic behavior? Like any of these things where you start getting users who are bad actors trying to game the system, um, the ways that we generally want platforms to respond to that include 
algorithmic detection and demotion and, you know, responding to bad user behavior in a way that, um, you know, gets rid of coordinated and authentic behavior to return us to the quote unquote more authentic state of what the platform should be <laughs> through algorithmic intervention. Um, so yeah, this, the, the whole idea of, of a de-amplified state is, is sort of a, um, epistemological mess. Um, <laughs> then the, the other things, you know, the, I, the other two things I talk about there are either um, the sort of circuit breaker model or some, some models grounded in, in competition and privacy. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> and just to be clear about why I find that whole direction more useful and interesting than regulating amplification of illegal content or amplification of harmful content is because if you don't have Congress picking and choosing the good speech versus the bad speech, but they are instead passing a law that is content neutral, that is not picking good speech and bad speech, mm -hmm. then it has a much greater chance of surviving the <laughs> inevitable First Amendment challenge. Right. So there may be some ways forward there where there are dead ends in, in the other approaches. Um, the circuit breaker idea is one that a lot of people bring up, which is like, well, j just don't let things go so very viral. If something's going viral right. really, really fast, just tamp it down. Um, and as and I had, I had one reviewer look at this who had some experience with this in, in the real world, who, who said, well, with that formula, uh, the, you know, the content moderators would spend all their time reviewing the Despacito video or, you know, <laughs> like looking at the things that go viral in real life, which mostly right. are entertaining nonsense um, and, and would not prioritize the things where there's actually a signal of a good reason to, right. you know, be concerned that something is ISIS content, etc. Um, so, you know, for that reason, and because it's relatively rare that there's something identifiably illegal that is, um, you know, can be prohibited under the First Amendment, where sudden viral spread is a huge issue. I, I don't have a ton of confidence that that's a useful way forward. But it is, there's probably a version of that that could be constitutional. So if, if you believe that there's a real problem that could be solved by that, you know, may, may, maybe there's a thing, a thing that could be done. Yeah, I'm much more interested in these the things that I talk about that are grounded in privacy or consumer protection, which are right. essentially um, increasing user autonomy and control over what we are seeing so that either through um, a competition mechanism or through a privacy law that gives us more control over what data is collected and used to target us, we can make choices about how much violence we want to see and how much political content we want to see and how many cat videos and so forth. And you and I have talked about these kinds of ideas in, in other contexts and, you know, could spend a lot of time on them, but <laughs> the, a lot, a lot of time. Yes. Um, but, but I, you know, I do think this is an interesting approach to amplification, both because it kind of skirts having Congress make choices about what speech doesn't get, does not get distributed widely. Um, and because if we had a lot more people seeing a lot of different lenses on Twitter or Facebook or whatever, then no one amplification choice made by Twitter or Facebook would be nearly as consequential as those choices are now. 
Yeah. And, and that's the area that, that really does interest me the most too. And, and for exactly that reason that what you're, what you're ending up with, you know, the real problem, I think, you know, that sort of gets to the root of the problem is that like, if all of the world's information is filtered through a single algorithm, <laughs> you know, when something goes viral, it goes really viral, <laughs> you know, mm -hmm. whereas if we had a lot of competing algorithms, then that issue becomes hopefully less, right? I mean, there are, there are scenarios where you still have some of those issues, but you, you, you sort of get two benefits as I see it. One is that it's not, it's not driving everybody through that exact same funnel so that if you get some sort of race condition <laughs> that is just pushing everybody to horrible content, you know, you have fewer people just relying on that algorithm. But, but secondly, and perhaps more importantly, is that you get a lot more experimentation uh, among the different algorithms and how they treat different content. And you also have sort of people self-selecting into the kinds of algorithms that they prefer and the kinds of things that they want to see, as opposed to just trusting, you know, the great, the great single algorithmic God <laughs> to, to decide what it is that they, they need to see. Um, and so, yeah. you know, that, that is the one approach that I, uh, you know, uh, have support, but people know that <laughs> if they listen, <laughs> if they listen to this podcast for any length of time, <laughs> they're, they're aware of my, my views on that, but that, you know, but it's interesting to me, at least that, that that approach feels very different and, 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 you know, and, and I think to some people it becomes unsatisfying um, and I, I mean, I could argue against it, but I know that like a lot of people come back and say, yes, but like, if you have that in theory, one of those competing algorithms could be the, you know, all horrible content all the time algorithm. Um, oh, for sure. It will be. Yes. Right. I mean, <laughs> that's, that's it's, it's the one internet. of your news <laughs> options now, or it's several of your news options yes. now. Um, and so, and, and so that is like, that is a concern. Um, and, but, but I think it becomes a different kind of problem than the one that we, we have today. Um, yeah, it's, it's a, this approach does not solve your problems. If what you're worried about is filter bubbles or echo chambers or people right. self isolating into a place where, um, dangerous lies are perpetuated and reinforced and, you know, et cetera. Um, but a, it might be very constitutionally difficult <laughs> to prevent that, uh, right. just like we can't prevent people from subscribing to, you know, the Daily Stormer or, you know, pe people get to choose horrible content if they want to up to a, a limit that's, you know, it's pretty far out there, the, the limit yes. of what people can choose if they want to and under U.S. First Amendment law. Um, but But also in exchange for... Um, there being, you know, pockets of people maybe opting into content moderation rules or ranking algorithms that are, you know, bad um, by by some normative standard. Um, in exchange, maybe you get the version of Twitter where female journalists are not being harassed. Right. You know, you get the distribution of versions of YouTube so that no, you know, if YouTube turns evil and wants to flip an election by choosing what videos we all see, they can't, you know, because there are yeah. a bunch of other competing uh, editors choosing what videos we all see. So there, there are a bunch of other problems that you get to resolve 
while not resolving the the filter bubble problem. Yeah, yeah. No, I I I think that's true. I think there are also there are also ways that the filter bubble can be dealt with under the, under those kinds of circumstances also, but but that's starting to get very far away from from, <laughs> from the the topic at hand and maybe one for another podcast. But uh but uh, so I, I think we can wrap up this discussion, which is very interesting. But if you want a lot more of it, uh, you should read Daphne's paper. Uh, once again, it is called Amplification and its Discontents. I had to scroll up to remind myself. <laughs> uh, and we'll link to it in the show notes. But it is always interesting, as it is always interesting to, to chat with you. Always interesting to chat with you. Thank you for having me. <laughs> sure. Uh, thanks for, for taking the time. And thanks to everyone for listening. And we'll be back next week.